as we go to our lesson and go to prayer first, I'd like to read a few verses from Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Our Father, we come to you because you are upright and just and holy, because you are the one who forgets our sins and buries them in the deepest sea as we come to you in humbleness and brokenness. And Lord, we have to admit that our iniquity is great and we're constantly in need of your cleansing and your washing and we're grateful that you have provided that for us. And Lord, it is also true as we read this morning that you instruct sinners in the way that those who are humble you teach. Lord, may our hearts be humble before you this morning, knowing, Lord, that we in ourselves know nothing as to eternal life or the things of God. And it's only through your Holy Spirit and the Word of God that we learn the truth that enables us to walk before you in righteousness. Lord, teach us today and move throughout this property this morning in services, in classes, wherever your word is proclaimed. We ask, Lord, for your blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may remember that we've been studying in 1 Samuel for about a year now. In the 23rd chapter of 1 Samuel, which is where we left off, we are reading about King Saul and his pursuit of David. You remember uh, Saul failed before God and, and disobeyed God blatantly, and so God chose David to be the successor and had him anointed by Samuel to be the successor to King Saul. And in his paranoia and as a result of his hardened heart, Saul pursued David. And last time uh, we noted uh, where this pursuit was taking place. Originally, David had come to, there, the city of Keilah is right in here and it's not on this particular map, but uh, David had rescued that city from an assault by the Philistines. And while he was there, King Saul prepared an attack to try to capture David and David fled into the wilderness. And here's the city of Hebron and south of the city of Hebron and over in this region over here are the two wildernesses that we were reading about last time, the wilderness of Ziph and the wilderness of Maon. And David was pursued by Saul past Hebron out into this wilderness here. And so the wilderness extends all the way from the highway which connects uh, Hebron with Arad down here over to the sea itself. And so David is, is seeking to, uh, of course, uh, not be caught, and Saul is attempting to capture him. And let's read the latter few verses of the 23rd chapter here, uh, beginning in verse 26. David is being pursued in the wilderness of Maon, and Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry, and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore they called that place the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. 
David has been allowed by God to experience this narrow escape. David has been successfully fleeing Saul week after week, month after month. But here in the wilderness of Maon, at a hill or mountain which is unnamed, David was on one side and his men were coming around to trap him on the other side. And he was nearly trapped and yet he escaped. God allowed this narrow escape to occur so that David would see more clearly than ever before that his salvation comes from the Lord, that his safety, his well-being, his future is in God's hands, not in his own brilliance. There isn't any way by our own ability that we can ultimately succeed in this life in the right way. Now, there are a lot of people that have, quote, success, uh, they have popularity, they have wealth, and it, it, you know, I've talked about this before, and it never seems to boggle my mind that people with wealth and popularity are sometimes the most unhappy people you ever heard of. They're out taking drugs, committing suicide, doing all kinds of things, which of course illustrates that the real joy and hope in life has nothing to do with wealth and nothing to do with fame. It has to do with peace. It, it has to do with security. It has to do with confidence. It has to do with hope. We can live on those things. Wealth has wings flies away and popularity can disappear literally overnight. Satan, of course, wanted David to believe that his cause was lost, that there was no hope. David, you're going to be trapped. You'll never be king. Come king of Israel. Nobody wants you to be king. Saul will destroy you. But God wanted him to understand that what God promises, God delivers, God fulfills. And God had promised him he would be king. David would succeed as king over Israel, no matter how unlikely that may seem. I think I mentioned to you last time that one of the young men at the Alliance Academy, where we taught 30 years ago, if somebody had said to me, do you realize that this young man here will someday be the pastor of a very large church in the south of the United States? I said, no way. Not this kid. But he is. And a good one and has a counseling ministry with his wife uh, that reaches out beyond his church into uh, the whole southern part of the country. Um, God can make things happen that from the human point of view seem so totally irrational and unlikely. And that's the way it was. Who is David? A shepherd. Why would he ever be king of Israel? Because God chose him. 400 years before, you will remember, when Moses and Israel appeared to be trapped between the, the Red Sea, which is off the bottom of this map over here, against the Red Sea and, and the Egyptian army, it looked like all was lost for Israel. And the Red Sea was a barrier, and yet God turned the barrier into a route of escape. God dried up a pathway through the Red Sea so that Israel could escape. So that which seemed to be the barrier was made into the path of deliverance. God sent the Philistines into the land of Israel so that they would distract Saul from his near success in trapping David. Right at the moment he's going to spring the trap, the word comes, the Philistines are in the land, you've got to come now, you're the king, you've got to defend the land. And I'm sure Saul pulled his hair out, I've got to do this. You know, right when he has David in his hands, he has to let him go because he has to serve as king and defend his land. God has an infinite number of ways of delivering us. And generally, there are ways that we cannot see ahead of time. Would, 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 have Israel, would Israel, when they came up to the Red Sea, thought possibly that God would make a path through the sea that they could walk on dry land? Now, how absurd is that? It's not part of our experience. It's not part of rational thinking. 
But God, of course, is super rational. He's beyond our thought and our ability. And, and David, for, for David, it looked like it was all over, and yet the last minute you could say the cavalry rode onto the scene. <laughs> for once the Philistines were good guys, at least for David. In Moses' case, of course, the Red Sea, which appeared to be a barrier to Israel's escape, became the passage to safety. And when we come to David, we see in this passage that the rock, uh, which almost was the rock of capture, becomes the rock of escape. The mountain becomes known to David as the rock of escape because he is delivered by God from, from his enemy. And yet when it was all over and, and Saul passes off the scene, David still feels insecure there in the wilderness of Maon because he's nearly been trapped. Uh, obviously Saul knows where he is. And so with Saul off fighting the Philistines, David moves his men north about 12 miles from the wilderness of Maon up to the uh, little oasis here of En Gedi, right there about midway down the western shore of the Dead Sea. We'll talk a little bit more about En Gedi as we look at this next passage for Samuel chapter 24. On the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord and the Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. A little event which, if it hadn't been for the fact that it plays such a significant role in biblical history, would never have even been recorded. <laughs> How many times have uh, events like this occurred and we have no idea about them having happened in the course of history. The Lord was not yet done teaching David in the school of the wilderness. He has rescued David. Saul is preoccupied with the Philistines, and we could say, well, uh, Saul can now go home and forget about David. But such would not be the case. When Saul defeated the Philistines, which God obviously enabled him to do, he returned to his pursuit of David. So David and his men had probably at the most a few weeks of reprieve maybe a couple of months, however long it took Saul to march wherever the Philistines were, defeat them and settle that whole thing and get back to where he thought David would be. How did he know where David was? Well, I think he knew where David was for the same reason he knew where David was before when he was in the wilderness of Ziph. Somebody squealed, somebody ratted, somebody wanted to curry favor with the king. And so he reported where David was hiding. En Gedi was an idyllic place to hide. Not only because if you ever get the chance to be at En Gedi, you'll discover that it's a deep ravine with high limestone cliffs that are pretty sheer and numerous caves. But what makes it idyllic is there are springs and there's a beautiful waterfall at the head of a portion of the canyon that drops down into a pool there. 
and it, it's almost like a paradise in many ways there. The ravine floor that goes out towards the Dead Sea, there, there is, uh, En Gedi is, <clears throat> you see a little green there, which, you know, basically shows, usually the colors represent elevations, but in this case, the color apparently represents greenery because you see it along the river here and these things here. It's an oasis. It's an oasis in the desert because the, the, uh, the ravine is very narrow, but it, as it opens out onto the floor or onto the coast of the uh, Dead Sea, there are evidences of uh, human occupation that go clear back to at least the time of Abraham. So at least for the last 4,000 years, people have been living in that ravine at En Gedi. The climate is very warm there. If ever you feel uh, pretty chilly in the wintertime, all you have to do is go over to Jericho or someplace like that, and it's very warm. It's like 75 degrees on the coldest day in winter uh, uh, in there because you're, well, at the Dead Sea, you're 1,300 feet below sea level. And even at Jericho, you're 900 feet below sea level. So it's, uh, it's a warm place. The climate is warm. And, of course, there is water because of the springs. And so water flows through there. So throughout history, date palms have been raised there. Vineyards have been raised there. Balsam, which is a, a tree which produces ointments and perfumes and that kind of thing, have, have been raised there in, in that uh, oasis at En Gedi. But of course, the part we're talking about is the upper part. It's more up in the actual uh, escarpment here, which drops off. That's a part where only shepherds visited occasionally because it's more rugged up in that portion. Now, if Saul had really understood the situation, the physical situation, he would have known that he needed far more than 3,000 chosen men in order to overwhelm 600 defenders in this indomitable landscape. I mean, it is rugged and wild. Saul probably took the route there. Um, you'll notice here's Bethlehem. I mentioned it before, there's a ridge route that goes from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to Hebron to Arad. Actually, it goes from Hebron over to Beersheba with a branch off to Arad. At Bethlehem here, there was a road that curved out this way and came down to En Gedi. And when, again, when I say road, <laughs> don't think of any road you know of. It's just a path, just a trail out across the, the countryside. And Undoubtedly, Saul took that route and approached En Gedi from the west because David would have been hiding in the upper part of the En Gedi uh, ravine. Now, the phrase mentioned in the, in the Bible here is rocks of the wild goats. Well, that location is not known today, uh, specifically uh, what that might be referring to. But the name implies that this was very treacherous terrain and you literally have these sheer cliffs towering over the ravine that drops down through towards the Dead Sea, and that this whole region was only easily negotiable by wild goats, mountain goats, and they still live over there in that part of the world. You probably have, have seen documentaries on wild goats, and they can go places you cannot even imagine. How can they go there? You know, it looks like it's totally vertical, and yet they manage to negotiate uh, that kind of terrain. At some point, we're told, Saul encountered a sheep pen. What they did was they built uh, low walls, just high enough to keep the sheep uh, penned in, and they apparently built these walls out from the cliff, and at the back of the pen was a cave into, into the cliff. And of course, the uh, pen would be such that the gateway could be closed, or in other areas, the shepherd usually slept in the gateway. 
uh, the sheep would stay in and the wild animals would theoretically stay out. Uh, in this case, uh, the, the, the cave was there for further protection if needed. And so as they were passing by there, Saul happened to notice the cave up there and, and having a particular need at the time. He decided to go into the cave to relieve himself in some privacy. Cover his feet is the literal Hebrew there, which generally is the term used for what we call going to the bathroom. And so obviously he goes into the cave alone. Now he's unfamiliar with the area. Saul is. David had been in this area as a child, raised sheep all through the wilderness area and may have even been to En Gedi before. But Saul was unfamiliar with the area and he had no idea how large this cave was. When you, when you see a cave opening, you of course never know how large the cave is if, if it goes into the darkness and you can't see the rear of the cave. Is it deep? Is it tall? Is it small? What's in this cave? He went into the cave and I don't think it even passed through his mind that David is in this cave. This cave you're walking into, David is in this very cave. Obviously, the cave was deep and the cave was large because David and his men were told in this passage were hiding in the inner recesses of the cave. Now, most small caves that I've been in, once you're inside and, and your eyes accustom themselves to the darkness, you can look back and you can see all the walls of the cave. But obviously, this was so deep that Saul couldn't see further back into the cave, and so David and his men were further back. I think David had probably explored all these caves, if not before, at least at this time, to find out what the possibilities were, because Saul will probably come after me, so where should, what are the best places to hide my men, or to spring an attack, or whatever we need to do. So, when David's sentinels, who were probably up in various places watching to see if Saul was coming, sent word Saul is coming, David and his men fled into this particular cave. It was a commodious cave and, and David probably wanted to go back into the cave and just trust that Saul would go marching on by, not realizing that Saul at that particular moment had a need and so he wanted to use the cave. Now, it's very unlikely that all 600 of David's men and all the other people that were associated with him were all in this cave. I, probably a group of them were, and he, others had probably fled to other caves. They were probably scattered around there, but he and many of his men were, were in this cave. Because I think David was smart enough to know that it would be pretty unwise to put my entire force in this cave. Because if somebody, if Saul happened to discover that he was in this cave, well, that's not a good thing, you know. Saul's men could wall the cave up or start a fire and you know, smoke him out, whatever it was. I, I don't think all of David's force uh, was inside this particular cave. Is, isn't it ironic to think about this, that Saul the hunter was in unwittingly placing himself at the mercy of David the hunted. This becomes another test of David's character. Notice that all of these events that are transpiring, that occur, that we read about, are tests of David's character. They're character-building events. Uh, and, and obviously, the, the uh, teaching to us is that God brings into our lives every day, every week, every month, events, things, personalities, uh, crises, good times, all of it to build character in us, to teach us trust, to teach us faith, to teach us obedience. All these things are part of God's course, his, his education that he's bringing to us. 
when, when Saul walks in alone, David's men think, whoa, what an opportunity we have. And they urge David, this is a golden opportunity to get rid of your enemy. They even quoted to him what is purported to be a divine promise, but is not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. The promise is, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. They quote this to David. David does not write this anywhere. It's, it's not in the Pentateuch anywhere. So, if this truly was the word of God to David and had been given to him at an earlier time, David understood it was not appropriate at this moment, at least in the way his men meant it. His men meant, your enemy's in your hands, now's your time, and your problems will be over. But he understood that if this promise were truly one from God that had been given to him at another time, that this did not give him license to violate his conscience concerning his treatment of the Lord's anointed. He had come to believe that Saul was the Lord's anointed and that it was never his right to lay his hand on the Lord's anointed. This was God's choice. God anointed this man and God must remove him. I will not remove him. Thus, rather than killing Saul, he merely cut off a piece of the hem of his outer robe. The commentator Ronald Youngblood puts it this way, out of respect for Saul's divine anointing and therefore not willing to kill him, but at the same time wanted him to know that he was not in control of his own destiny, David crept up behind him unnoticed. David wanted Saul to know you could have been had, man, and yet did not want to actually lay his hand on him. Now, Saul had undoubtedly taken off his outer garment and laid it aside in order to facilitate uh, what he had to do. But the question is, how in an echoey cave, I mean, I think all, probably all of you have been in a cave at some time or another, and you know that those stone walls echo sounds like crazy. You know, how, how in such a cave did David and his men keep quiet enough that Saul heard nothing? And how did David creep up on Saul, even if he had thrown his, his robe a few feet away only? How, how could he crept up close enough to, to take his knife and cut off a piece of Saul's robe? And Saul is totally <laughs> oblivious of the whole thing, except that the Lord allowed it to be. Strangely, even this seemingly minor act gave David a guilty conscience. David was a man with a very sensitive conscience. Oh, he would kind of sear it a little later on in time when he's king, and it would take Nathan to kind of hammer him between the eyes uh, to wake up but, uh, the prophet. But at this point, he has a very, very sensitive conscience. And, and this appears to have stemmed from two factors. First, even though he had not touched Saul physically, he had done nothing to harm Saul physically, he had desecrated Saul's royal robe. And that robe was the symbol of his God-anointed kingship. Secondly, there seems to be some historical evidence, some innuendos in some of the events and writings that have come down through ancient history that cutting the piece, a piece off a sovereign's robe was a declaration of open rebellion against that king. 
David did not consider himself to be a rebel. David considered himself to be a loyal subject of King Saul, unjustly pursued. And so he felt guilty for violating his beliefs in, in doing this, this seemingly harmless act. Now, what's interesting is that this passage, as we read it here, back in verse 4, did men of David say this to David, this, this is your day of opportunity? And then David in verse 6 says to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing. He's already cut off the piece of Saul's robe. And all this talking is going on while Saul is still in the cave. Because in verse 7 it says, David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave. So again, you know, how deep was this cave that, that they could, even in whispers, carry on this conversation and Saul was totally oblivious. Maybe Saul was getting hard of hearing by that time. I don't know. But what's that? I think you're thinking that. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe. Well, could be. My wife said maybe there was water running through it. Well, that's possible. Obviously, caves are formed by water running through them. Whether there was water running through this or not, maybe. Maybe that's what attracted him into the cave in the first place. David explains his beliefs to his men. Certainly he believed that God's anointed was sacrosanct. This was a deeply engraved belief in David's mind and heart. I will not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. God has chosen him. It is not my right to unchoose him. But at the same time, I think he was setting a precedent. He was showing to his men and to all who were paying attention that later, when I am king, you don't touch me either. <laughs> and you don't touch my descendants, right? We're all inviolate. You don't touch us. So he was, I think, setting a precedent here as well. Well, David was persuasive enough that his men refrained from killing Saul, although some of them were probably just champing at the bit to get out there and do Saul in. They were tired of being chased around too. So when Saul had finished his business, whether it be a nap as well as relieving himself, whatever, he left the cave totally oblivious to the fact that he had barely dodged a bullet. Let's read on the next few verses here at verse 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord the king! And Saul looked behind him. David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, for I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me on you, by my hand, but by my hand, but my hand shall not be against you. 
As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord, therefore, judge, be judge, and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David, uh, Saul hadn't gotten far out of the cave, gone down a little ways there uh, from the entrance to the cave when David rather audaciously went to the mouth of the cave and hailed him. And of course, Saul, <laughs> imagine <laughs> this voice coming from behind him and a voice that he, of course, recognized. I mean, knew he recognized whether he actually recognized it right off or not. But he turned around to see who was calling him. And I think he was shocked to put it mildly, to find David standing in the entrance of the cave he just walked out of. David immediately prostrated himself on the ground in homage to Saul. Giving Saul the benefit of the doubt, David credits Saul's hatred to his malevolent advisors. David is saying, it's not really you who think I'm a bad guy. It's your advisors who's, who are telling you that I'm out to harm you. He called him father, my father. I think he does this for two reasons. First, out of deference to this man who is his king, but also to the fact he was his father-in-law because David was married to Saul's daughter. And so he is his father in that sense. And then to prove that he had no desire whatsoever to harm Saul, he held up the piece of Saul's robe that he had cut off in the cave. Saul certainly looked down at the edge of his robe to, you know, confirm, is that really a piece of my robe? David then proclaimed that it was not his purpose and it was not his place or his intent to harm Saul. He was not going to avenge himself against the Lord's anointed. He was going to let the Lord settle the matter. Just imagine how much better world we'd live in if that was the way human beings acted. Even Christians. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We have no right to take revenge or vengeance or to avenge ourselves on anyone at any time. It's up to God to do it. Oh, defend ourselves, yes, but not to take revenge. Get even. You see those bumper stickers. I can't even remember exactly what they say now, but one of them says something about, uh, I don't, something or other, I get even. Or, oh, don't get mad, get even, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people do. And it's a temptation, particularly for those of us who are the male portion of the species, you know. <laughs> Uh, don't tread on me. That used to be the flag of the colonies back in the 13 states. Don't tread on me. Uh, and, and it was a, a snake, a viper, that was on the, on the flag. And the idea was, you're in trouble, you tread on me. But, but what David is illustrating here is the truth of what God has said. It's up to God to take revenge. And he will, in his time. We're in a hurry. <laughs> we want to see him bleed now. But... God will do it in his time because God always does it in a far better and more permanent way than we can. So he says, I'm going to let the Lord settle the matter. The source of the proverb which David 
quotes there is unknown, but it basically means, by their fruit you shall know them, which is a biblical concept. Then in an attempt to put the issue between Saul and David in perspective, David said, who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? In other words, with all your responsibilities as king, with all the things you're supposed to be doing as king, why are you spending all this effort chasing after someone who has, is absolutely no threat to you? Matthew Henry, that uh, great uh, English commentator of a couple of centuries back, writes these words. He says, It is below so great a king to enter the lists with one that is so unequal a match for him. The lists was uh, when uh, knights in shining armor would join up against each other and fight in, in, a, in a tournament. One of his own servants bred a poor shepherd, now in exile, neither able nor willing to make any resistance. What credit would, be, would it be to Saul to trample upon a dead dog? You know, we, we have a phrase, what good does it do to beat a dead horse, I guess? <laughs> the same idea. What pleasure could it be to him to hunt a flea, a single flea? Which, and, and this, <laughs> the way Matthew Henry puts it here is so interesting to me. If it be sought, is not easily found. If it be found, is not easily caught. If it be caught, is a poor prize, especially for a prince. <laughs> the great hunter comes back with a little dead flea. <laughs> oh, goody. <laughs> Shall we have a parade, a triumph <laughs> for you? And that's, you know, what David is saying. You're out after nothing, after nothing that brings you any glory. I am no threat to you. What's the point of all this? You're wasting your energy for nothing. As his final argument, David put their issue in the hands of the sovereign judge, calling upon the Lord to plead his cause and to deliver him from Saul's wrath. Since David would one day become king. He was learning firsthand the plight of the oppressed when faced with the actions of a mighty prince. In other words, David was on the other side of, of the issue. And so when he became the mighty prince, he would understand the plight of the oppressed. It's kind of like the man who becomes general in the army having begun as a butt private and spent and given his due at every rank on the way up. Hopefully that person understands the position of the lower rank better than one of these characters that just goes to some high flutin school like Harvard, you know, and, is, and goes right into officer training and bloop comes in as a commissioned officer never having gone through the ranks. Doesn't understand is, you know... <laughs> turns out to be the kind of officer that often gets it in the back sometime from some of his own men. So this would be powerful training for David in preparation to be king. God, God wastes nothing. Everything comes into our life for a reason. And God is using that to prepare us for what he has in the future for us. Sometimes it doesn't seem like fun. In fact, uh, here again we see how the evil intent of Satan Satan wanted to use this to destroy David, is turned for good by God. And rather than being destroyed, David is disciplined 
by this persecution so he'll be a more faithful and righteous servant of God in the days to come. And all of this is brought to a kind of a point to us by the verse you know so well in Hebrews 12, which says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, not be like Saul of Tarsus, whom the Lord said, why are you kicking against the goads? It's painful, Saul. Let the goads train you to be the man that I've called you to be. Psalm 142, written by David when he was in the cave, whether this cave or another cave uh, is not important, but it gives us a sense of the sorrow that he felt in the midst of this discipline. Let me read these words from Psalm 40, 1, 142, 142. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. And anybody think that you can't complain to God? Yes, you can complain to God. In fact, it's the best place to complain. Better than complaining to your friend or your neighbor or your wife or your husband. Not that you shouldn't do that, but this is more effective. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. And in the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. He was really in the pit here. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison, so that I may give thanks to, thy, to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. In the time of troubles, we can cry out to God. And God will hear and God will answer. And bountiful times will come in his time and by his work. Well, next week we'll uh, pick up with the 16th verse of First uh, Samuel and see how Saul reacts to being confronted as he was here.